Well, yeah, like relatively accurate biography, I guess. I uh, grew up in New South Wales. Yes, I do still go to school in New South Wales. I know they kind of suck, but yes, I still am loyal to the cause. My sons were born in New South Wales, so, you know, it's just going to be the way it is. Yes, so I've been married to Jack for nine, nine years in October, Mum, it will be, which is kind of crazy, because I know some of the guys here from, like, I feel like uh, my life is kind of like in segments sort of thing, like I've got my, my first segment, which was growing up in rural sort of New South Wales, and then I've got my sort of Brisbane segment, which was only about sort of five-ish sort of years, and I uh, spent time, and I became a Christian in Brisbane, like just over there at uh, Big Camp in 2003, I became a Christian when Eddie Hippolyte was here preaching uh, that first sort of time. I ended up getting baptised at South Pine Church. I was one of the first, if not the first, people baptised at uh, South Pine Church, which was pretty amazing sort of experience. I spent most of a year in Tanzania uh, doing a bit of mission sort of stuff over there. Came back, decided I wanted to marry Jack. So I spent some time saving some money to uh, get married because they're kind of expensive things, uh, wives, that is. Um, and and um, went to college, studied ministry, and like, I, whenever I'm sort of describing it to people that aren't sort of church people or even people that are church people, I say it's kind of like the army, especially like when you just sort of graduate. You could, they could send you anywhere. It could be Auckland to Perth, and they sent me to Perth. And uh, I've been in Perth for the last five years doing a whole manner of different things. Uh, evangelism, chaplaincy, uh, local church in a, in a small church, local church in a big church. And uh, I'm now senior pastor of a medium-sized church, I guess you could say, in the, in the uh, middle of the city uh, at Vic Park. And it's been a great experience. But... Uh, West is strange. Are there any West Australians here? Oh, okay. <laughs> Everybody else will know what I mean then, right? Um, no, they're great people, but it is a long way away. And uh, W, I, when I moved to Queensland, I thought Queensland was slow. Um, because I grew up in a small town and we had a 24-hour Woolworths in like 10 of 10,000 people. I moved to Brisbane and they shut at five. And I was like, what is going on here? But WA is even further behind. Like it is literally wait a while in uh, WA. But it's great. And so yes, married to Jack, I have two boys. Archie, who's six, uh, going on 16. He's uh, a beautiful, moody, uh, eclectic soul that he is. And uh, little Noxie, who just turned five, on Tuesday, he's uh, our cheeky little gymnastic go-getter, sanguine, uh, all those sort of good things. Um, so they're having fun with Grandma at the moment. But before we start, let's just pray one more time. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for time that we have that we can come and share it. I thank you that your spirit has promised to be with us and that you've uh, guaranteed that for us, so Lord, we can say in confidence and gratitude, just teach us now, share with us your word, guide us, strengthen us, build us up in it, and uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So you have learnt a little bit about James. James is kind of one of my favourite sort of characters in Scripture. There's not really too much sort of said about him, other than he's Jesus' brother, and I don't know if any of you uh, have grown up and you have siblings, but can you imagine having Jesus as your brother, what that must have been like growing up? It's hard enough growing up with siblings that aren't perfect, <laughs> and that sort of sibling rival, imagine the grief you must have had growing up being Jesus' brother. And you see the story from James, and you pick up glimpses in the Gospels, and you see him at one stage with him and the rest of his family, and they come to Jesus, and they're like, dude, what are you doing? This is crazy. You're embarrassing yourself. Come home. Jesus obviously tells them, you don't know what you're talking about. 
post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, you see James as the leader of the church. He's gone from doubting brother to leader. Not only is he the leader, they're going to take James and they're going to take him to the top of the temple. And the temple in Jerusalem is like a big building. If you can think of, we're talking like a couple of stories sort of high at least. And they took him there and they said to him, and they said, James, you know, stop telling people about your brother. It's kind of annoying us. You're making us look bad. And James said, no, no way. They said, James... Stop talking about your brother. We're going to throw you off. He said, well, you can throw me off, but I can't stop talking about him. So they threw him off. But somehow, he didn't die. He just got broken bones everywhere, broken legs everywhere. All that sort of would have been a bit of a mess. They pulled him aside and said, James, you're serious, man. Stop talking about your brother. He's like, no. They took him to the outside of Jerusalem and stoned him to death. What a transformation. People say Jesus isn't real. Imagine your brother being a doubter and then thinking and coming along and going, no, my brother truly was the Son of God. If that's not evidence that Jesus is real, I'm not sure what is. But one of the other strange characters that is written quite a bit more about in the Bible is Peter. And the Apostle Peter is definitely colorful. You could call him colorful. And in Christian history, he's brash, he's aggressive, he tends to not mind a fight. Kind of pretty much the opposite of me. Like, there's sort of conflict, I'm kind of like, uh, yeah, wall, see you later sort of thing. I blame it on my sort of English heritage. We just sort of, we like to pretend things aren't wrong, right? And just sort of hide it under, but not Peter. Peter's aggressive. He's not afraid of conflict. Uh, If you're sort of nervous or squeamish about conflict, Peter's the opposite. Whatever you can think of as the person who avoids conflict, Peter is the polar of the opposite side of the scale. He welcomes it. He almost even appears to look for it. He's that guy that is ready for a fight. He's also the dude that tends to speak before he thinks. One of those guys. Again, you might not be able to relate to any aspect of that about Peter and his personality, but there is something that we can relate to. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to start there this morning. Where do I? Yes, that's the right one. Mark chapter 14, 26 and 28, and that says... And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they fall away. Don't you love Peter? Jesus just gives him like a a straight concrete statement and says, You will all be scattered. And Peter's like, Yeah, these guys maybe, not me, right? you got to love him. For sure they will deny you, but not me. He doesn't say they might. Peter is like throwing his mates under the bus a little bit there. Even though they all fall away, I hear you, Jesus, I get it. You are the son of God. They are going to fall away. Peter does what he so often does. Even though they all fall away, I will not. I I imagine Jesus stopping in that moment and looking at Peter, and he says, truly, I tell you, yeah, thank you, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, he's like, Peter, my brother, I love you, you are the rock and all that, I've, I told you what is going to happen, that you're going to be the foundation of this church, but before the morning, you will have completely denied me. Ironically, Peter's denial of his denial leads Jesus to single him out for special mention. God's love, if God loved him, doesn't he take this rebuke? He doesn't take this rebuke particularly well. 
Remember, he loves a good fight. He's not, he's not a back down kind of dude. Peter replies to Jesus, but he said emphatically, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Jesus stops, singles him out, reaffirms what he said. He said, dude, you are going to deny me three times. And Peter still stops and says, no, you're wrong. It's not going to happen, Jesus. And more so, Peter leads the others to go, yeah, yeah, I'm with Peter. We will never deny you, Jesus. One thing that is definitely true about Peter is he's a leader. He is a leader of leaders. I mean, there's a very good reason Jesus singled him out to be the head of the church, to be the one that will be the guy that will go forward, the one that they could rely on, the one who is in Acts leading the charge of the gospel, sometimes leading it into hypocrisy, but nevertheless, he is a leader. He says, you're going to deny me. Peter says, I'm not going to deny you. Even if I must die, I will not deny you. That same night, Jesus is arrested. He's taken before the high priests. And we see in Mark 14, 66, what happens. And the servant girl saw him, Peter. And they began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them because you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse and swear. And I said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Je- what Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. In another one of the Gospels, it says that Jesus will look at Peter at that moment. He will look at him, and Peter will break down and weep. Have you ever disappointed someone that you loved? Have you ever been such a disappointment that inside of you, you just knew that you had broken their heart? Even though Jesus knew it was going to happen, imagine that feeling of betrayal, one of your best, best friends has just stood in front of you and denied that they even know you. Heartbreaking. Jesus, uh, Peter, realizing what he has done, breaks down and weeps. Here's where Peter and you and I intertwine. Sometimes it's really easy for us to get carried away. Sometimes it's easy for us to be a little bit too confident in our ability. Sometimes it's easy for us to go along and sort of go, okay, Jesus wants me to do this. Yep, man, I got it memorized. It's easy for us to read a book like James and go, oof, that was a bit tough. Yeah, I got this. I can, I can do that. I know what you're asking me, Jesus, is a little bit much, but sure, no problem, no problem. I can do it. I'll never deny you, Jesus. I'll never turn away from you. I'll never sin against you. But like Peter, we would just end up a broken, weeping mess, a failure. Not particularly because he denied Jesus. Jesus knew he would, right? But because he denied his denial. Peter didn't have the humility enough to stop and turn back to God and ask for help. In the text of James this week, it will hopefully guide us through the process of not repeating Peter's mistakes. Essentially, that God's plan is not to transform us into islands, but that he wants us to be connected to him through a continual relationship with him. We saw in Peter a zealous, a ferocious, a passionate, a hardworking man, and he epically fell apart at the questioning of a little girl. I think we're far too confident sometimes in our own ability to knock things out. James is going, we'd better get back to God. James is going to say that true obedience, true obedience comes only through a connection to God. So let's go to James and see what Jesus' brother had to say. So we're in James 5.13. I would encourage you, if you have a Bible with you or 
on a phone, that would be great. Uh, if you're sort of new and you don't even own a Bible, App Store, ESV, free, I would recommend it. It's, it's a pretty good translation, and uh, you can take it with you wherever you go. James 5 and verses 13 and onward, <coughs> and he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore fruit. Now, there's a lot in that text, but sort of stick with me. And I think your first kind of reaction is going to be like, okay, yeah, pray. I kind of get that, dude. Like, shock, I'm in church. Prayer, we should be praying. I get it. Sing, yep cool, we should be singing, I, I sort of understand that, it's what we need to do, it's sort of what we sort of tick off in our Christian life, but what we're actually missing is the point of what James is saying, he's saying, what he's saying is, he's inviting us to pray, he's inviting us to sing, he's in, inviting us to connect with God. It's a call for reconnection. It's a call for the Christian to come and actually live in the presence of God. It's a call for the Christian to say, hey, you are not an island. The only reason that you can exist, the only reason you can please God, the only way that you can live is to live in connection with Him. But it's not just that. You see, God's great desire, God's great desire is not that we would particularly be sinless, God's great desire is that we would be with Him. You see, the whole story of Scripture is really one great story, with little stories in between. And this one great story, this one meta story is God living with His people, or God's desire to live with His people. You see, in the beginning, Jesus and God create everything, and He sees it, and He says that it is good, very good even. And God lived with those people and He walked with them and He talked with them and He communed with them and He understood them and they had this great relationship. But then sin comes in and they break apart. There's this destruction of this relationship. God and man separated. And God decides that He needs to come in with a plan. He understands the plan of salvation. We see Exodus and God saving His people and bringing them out. And after Exodus, He says to them, Moses, make me a tabernacle so I can live with my people. God's point of making a tabernacle, God's point of bringing them out of that was to have a special people to call out to everyone, to tell them that I, God, want to be re, re, again, again with my people Fast forward and we see Jesus, and we see that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, God with us. God took it upon Himself rather than calling us up to Him and making us do that, which was impossible. He said, okay, I'm going to go down to my people. And Jesus, God, became man to be God with us. We see after that, God came through, and in Revelation, Jesus says, I've got a little way to go. <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> and it says, in Revelation, we see this restoration of everything, and God says to him, I will make all things new, and I will live with my people. And not only is he recreating it, but he's recreating it on steroids, because rather than heaven being up there and earth being down there, heaven will be on earth, and God will live with his people forever. That is God's great desire. 
Have you ever been separated by those you love? Have you ever been separated from someone? How painful is death? There is something so unnaturally painful and agonizing about death. Imagine that billions of times over. We sort of see the heart of God. The invitation to prayer and praise is an invitation to connect to the heart of a willing God. A God who sees you and warts and all and still invites you to come to Him, to be connected to Him. It can be easy for us to fall into the trap that prayer is kind of just this duty. It's kind of this requirement to living a godly life when in a deeper, more meaningful way, prayer is really about us connecting to the heart of God, talking to our Father, connecting to the Creator. We see here, are you suffering? Go to Him. Are you cheerful? Sing praises about Him. Are you sick? Gather with the others and the elders and go to Him. Regardless of what is going on in your life, the message James is giving is go to God. Now, do you think about God like that? Oh, you're suffering. Come in. Come to Him. Oh, you're happy. Man, get in here. Let's celebrate together. Oh, you're sick. Let me take care of you. That's what James is saying is God's heart for us. James is saying that no matter what the situation, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're experiencing, God wants to be a part of it. God wants to be involved in it, connected to it through all things. The Apostle Paul is going to say in Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God of God. What he's saying is, you cannot have a compartmentalized Christian existence. You cannot have God in one box, work in another box, family in another box, and expect them to all be connected. The Christian life is a life with one box. It is the God box, and, in the, and out of that box comes work, out of that box comes relationships, out of that box comes money and how we spend it. Christian life is a life that comes from connecting to God. James is inviting us to connect with the living God in whatever season you're going through in your life. If you're suffering, if you have any sort of affliction, if you have anything give you grief, pray, he says, take it to God. Okay, what does that actually look like though, right? Fair enough, like you're telling me to pray, you're telling me I need to be more praying, you're telling me I need to just do this stuff more, what do I do? Well, I'll share with you one little thing that I do. Uh, This little thing up here. And this is literally what I would write out on a piece of paper. So I will have like my little journal book and I will just cut it into four pieces. And first of all, I'll write in the top left-hand corner, worry, in that top left box. And I will stand there and I will sit for anywhere between, the whole period will take me like five to 20 minutes. And I'll sit and I'll just list things. Okay, what am I worried about? What's sort of stressing me out this morning? If I did it this morning, I would would have put down preaching at refresh. (laughs) Freaking me out to no end. Anything, what's happening in my life? Like, am I worried about my relationship? Am I worried about work? Am I worried about whatever? And I'll just list them out. And then I'll say, the next column, and I'll go, okay, what am I thankful for? And I'll list out things that I am thankful for. And it's easy, like, don't get caught in the trap of just listing big things. You need to list at least a couple on your things that you're thankful for need to be small things. I'm thankful for the sunshine this morning. I'm thankful for having a warm bed. Because if you are only thankful for the big things... (laughs) It can lead you into being unthankful for the things that, or unappreciative of the things that you have. And another question you can ask yourself in in thanks is, what's bringing me joy? Write it down. Then I'll read scripture. Sometimes I'll be working through a passage, or I will just read a couple of verses at random. And only literally like a couple of verses, definitely no more than a chapter. And I'll spend a few minutes thinking, what's this text mean to me? What's this text saying to me? How, can, how does this text apply to my life? And I'll write those things in that box. And then finally, I pray about all those other things. 
I'll pray about the worries that I have in my life. I'll give thanks to God for the, the things that I am thankful for and I'm joyful for, and I'll pray for the application of the things that in the Scripture that I'll say, God, make me more like these things in the Scripture. And I tell you, since doing this, uh, or the days particularly I do this, because 100% honest, I don't do it every day, uh, my stress, my anxiety, my joy, my happiness in life is exponentially greater. This is just a simple tool. If you want to use it, whatever. But the point is just saying, you need to pray more. God wants to be a part of it. Cast your burdens on Him. Give thanks in all situations. An important thing to remember as we're thinking about these things is I'm currently doing a series in my home church uh, in Vic Park in Perth uh, on the armor of God. And in the armor of God, Paul leads off and he says, these things, we wrestle against these things. The spiritual life is not a walk in the park. The spiritual life is not just something that just you fall into. It is not something that you can just expect to happen. Paul says you are wrestling, you are combating, you are struggling for these things. He's going to say to his uh, trainee, Timothy, train yourself in godliness, Timothy. The word train means gymnasio, where we get gymnasium literally from. He means work at it, heart, put effort into it, plan it, practice it. You don't become an athlete accidentally, just as you don't become godly accidentally. There are a few things, though, that make us a little bit more uncomfortable than prayer. Singing. Singing make us makes us uncomfortable. Singing praises to God. Why here, when we are joyful, should we sing to God? And particularly men, let's be honest. Who here is super comfortable going, singing in front of other people? Guys, we don't like it. And really, like, it's a pride thing. Thank you guys for doing it and setting a good example. Singing's a weird thing. There's nowhere else in, in the world besides maybe our car or our shower that we will sing. Maybe a concert. Maybe, like I said, the car or the family. But really, it's the only place we do it. And singing, for the majority of people, is a humbling experience. <laughs> it is, for the majority of people, a humbling experience. Because unless you are particularly gifted, and I was very impressed by your uh, singers and musicians this morning, where most churches would be happy to have, like, two of you guys. You had so many. That was awesome. Uh, singing is difficult. Often we don't know all the words. Often, most of us don't know how bad we are. <laughs> oh, it's just difficult. But it really, it's not because we physically can't that we don't like singing. We don't want to because it might hurt our delicate pride. Perhaps we don't like singing as men because it's a bit effeminate. I know the culture I grew up in Rural Australia, man, you don't sing. Girls sing. But that's not the Bible, right? The Bible is going to have some of the most masculine guys are going to be the lead singers. King David, known for his songs, known, through, known throughout all the land for his singing and playing the harp, killed so many people that God said, dude, you can't build a temple, you've got too much blood in your hand. The guy that killed Goliath, that chopped his head off, right? Let's not make it clean. He chopped his head off, sang and played the harp. He didn't have a problem with pride there. So why does God tell us to sing? Firstly, singing digs deep roots. In Colossians 3.16, the Bible says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Singing digs deep roots. 
You know this to be true. Who here has not had a song stuck in their head for days and days and days, and you just driving you mental, but you just cannot get rid of it. It's just clung into there. It's got its hooks into your brain, and it is not going away whether you like it or not. There's not too many things that can do that. Singing and songs can get their roots in there and cling in. Who hasn't, well, maybe you need to be a bit older, some of you. Who hasn't heard a song that they haven't heard for maybe 10 or 12 years and you're instantly transported back to the place where that song was popular in your time of life? Songs are special. Songs stick with us. They have meaning to us. They dig their roots deep down into our souls. And if you're a teacher, an early primary school teacher, you guys have a song for everything. My kids are in early primary school, kindy in year one, and they sing songs about anything and everything, from brushing your teeth to how to wash your hands to the alphabet song. And if I asked you to now sing the alphabet song, pretty well all of you could sing the alphabet song and the tune because it is stuck deep down within you. When we sing Christian songs, our songs that talk about God, His goodness, His greatness, then we are really deep down in our souls, embedding it in ourselves. It is making hooks into our hearts and into our minds and we are, are putting it this imprint on our hearts. Sing the songs, he says. Another reason God tells us to sing is that singing can transport us to another place. In a time of trials, in a time of pain, singing fixes our mind not on the cause of the pain, but takes us away to a different place. You know, there's a reason why soldiers sing songs while they're marching while their officers get them and teach them songs while they march, because if they're singing the songs, they're thinking about the songs, and they're not thinking about how much it hurts. Songs have a way of transporting us to another place. It helps us set our eyes on the eternal and not to be fixated on the temporal and everything around us. Lastly, singing strengthens and restores Singing hymns and songs of praise has been related to the equivalent of prayer. Then in essence, they're actually the same thing. So when we sing, we're connecting to who we sing about. I had this one time that I remember very distinctly. My wife was pregnant with our first child, Archie. God bless him, he was a, uh, a beautiful surprise. <laughs> and... I'm studying, and uh, my wife's pregnant, and I'm freaking out. I'm like, man, I've got, like, a couple more years of study to go. How am I going to, like, make money? I've got to have, like, a family to support. I think every guy that, like, has kids at some stage, especially the first one, they have this, like, moments of freak out, and they're just going, what am I going to do? I'm going to, not only, I don't just have to look after me and the missus anymore, I'm going to have this thing that is going to be completely dependent on me, I'm going to have to earn money, I'm going to have to buy a house, I'm going to do all these things, and I'm freaking out, and I'm there studying uh, to become a pastor, who are, and it, we are renowned for earning high wages, and we are renowned for, for the great work hours, and we are renowned for all these awesome perks freaked out, and I said, that's it, you know what, I'm going to become a doctor, doctors earn good money, I can, I can still be, I can still serve Jesus, you know, I'll still do my mission trips, I'll still do things like that, you know, maybe I'll go work in the country or something, and, uh, you know, we'll work in the church while we're there, but I'll still be earning good money, so it'll be okay. I enrolled in a biology subject at college. I did the biology subject. I enrolled in GAMSAT, which is the uh, medical preparation test. I was trying to teach myself chemistry. I'm not sure how that was going. 
that I was set a little more than a month before I was to sit my exam. I was driving along in the car one day, had the music going. I don't even remember particularly what the song was. It was some sort of worship song, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's exams. Why are you running today? Come on. You know what you're supposed to be doing. I started crying. It's okay, I'm in the car. And I pulled over, and there was just this overwhelming sense of something. I can't really describe it, but this song had just triggered something deep down within me, something that I'd been running from, something that I was trying to deny, something that I was pushing further and further away, but this song had had its roots deep down and pulled it back out. I didn't sit the exams that. I finished college, and thank goodness in a journey, but it's been good. Singing digs deep roots into our soul so that when trials and difficulties come, we have those deep roots to hang on to. The text goes on. Hey, you sick? Then call the elders together. They're going to anoint you with oil and pray for you. What this text is really saying, what it's really about is that you cannot do Christianity alone. The church, and by the church I mean what the Bible means, the church is a group of people who come together to worship. The church is supposed to be the physical embodiment of Jesus himself. It is the physical, Im- it is the physical embodiment of God. We are God's presence on earth. And whether it is through sickness or people praying for you or through being other ways of practical help, the church is here for each other. You can't do Christianity alone. We are here together to represent his love and care for each other. In fact, so much so that Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you know what, guys? You know how other people are going to know that you follow me? They're going to know you follow me when you can love each other. That's how they're going to know you follow me. And that sounds kind of easy, right? But, you know, who fights the most? Family or neighbors? Families fight the most, right? because you know all their dirty secrets. You know all the itty-gritty. You've got to live with those people. When you're connected, when you are family, when you are part of the one, it's hard to love each other, but that's what we're called to do. Then we go on to verse 15, and we're almost done. Verse 15 says, we see the ongoing ethics of confession and repentance. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It almost seems like James is amping up the uncomfortableness. Some of us are uncomfortable to pray. Some of us are really uncomfortable to sing. And most of us are really uncomfortable talking about our problems. <laughs> right? And this is what he's just amping it up. And he's saying, hey, guys, share your problems with each other. You see, James isn't trying to make us uncomfortable. He's actually trying to release us from discomfort. Literally, he's trying to bring us peace. You know that gnawing in the pit of your stomach? The guilt that is making you bitter, that's literally making you feel sick. The guilt that is making you really not want to get out of bed, that is making you angry, that is making you discontented, that is affecting your relationships. Yeah, there's a cure for that. It's called confession. Do you know, confession isn't just a bit of spiritual, right, yeah, yeah. Confession is scientific. Neuroscientist Dr. David Eagleman has said that, uh, if, said that when you want to keep something secret, you have these competing populations in your brain. One part wants to say something and the other part wants to shove it down deeper. The struggle involved in keeping the wrong behavior secret stresses out your brain. So by actually suppressing your guilt, by having this thing that you are holding onto, you're actually stressing yourself out. And we all know that when you stress yourself out, you get sick, you can't sleep, all other things it can affect. They did another study 
and they studied the people who did practice confession. And in the study, they had to come and they would confess all their wrongdoings and then they would monitor their health. And they found that the people that came and confessed as opposed to the people who didn't had improved relationships, more tangible health benefits. They had uh, improved immune systems, better depth and intimacy of relationships, and much better sleep. Confession isn't just about spirituality. Confession is about your health. The Bible and science is saying, don't live a duplicitous life. Don't have secret sins that will eat you from the inside and affect your life and health in ways you wouldn't think possible. Last text. The last illustration here is the illustration of that of Elijah. In verse 16, it says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. If you don't know about Elijah, what you really need to know is this. The guy was legit. (laughs) He had miracles following him wherever he went. He prayed, and it stopped raining. He prayed again, and it would rain. That was three and a half years later. But what actually happened in the middle of those two things is the crazy part. The miracles, he had evil kings trying to kill him, more miracles, and in the midst of what obviously from the outside was God's will, Elijah fears, he doubts, he struggles with God's purpose, he even gets to the point of such depression, which ironically is after the huge victory he has with God, this huge God moment, God showing his power, Elijah runs away and he sinks into this depression and he asks God, kill me, I no longer even want to live in this place, I don't want to go on anymore. Elijah did amazing, incredible things, but he didn't, didn't wear a cape, he was pouty, he struggled, he feared, he had a nature just like you and me, yet in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the, the miraculous, in the midst of the fear, he clung onto his connection with God. He held on to him, he held on to that relationship as it was the only thing that he had. And after Elijah hands over the reins to his apprentice, Elisha, the next time we see this pouty, this struggling, this fearful man is in the transfiguration with Moses. James is reminding us, he's compelling us to be like Elijah, that while we have trials, while we have fears, while we have struggles, while we have our depressive times, if we cling to our connection with him, we will see it through. Refresh Church, the most important relationship we have is our relationship with Jesus himself. From him, all things will come From Him, all things find their purpose. From Him, all things will be added to in time. Commit to it. Nurture it. Work at it. And enjoy the blessings that come from it. Thank you. Okay, Um, we don't normally do a song after, but I feel like it's kind of appropriate after that whole talk. So um, let's get smacked in the face by the Holy Ghost and let's sing this next song.
is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less. Come on, church, sing it. Than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest flame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone, the cornerstone, weak made strong in Savior's love. Through the storm, He is the Lord, Lord of
by the uh, power of his spirit that uh, I don't think these guys had any idea without speaking in tongues. And yet, they did anchor. They finished up with Cornerstone. The whole message that James is trying to get across is, is that not that you're don't have to be perfect. You have to be perfect in your clinging to God, perfect in your search for God, perfect that you would go and hold on to Him. But He has a perfect desire to be with you. That's what James is about. So let's, uh, with that in mind, let's pray as we conclude this. Lord, I thank you for the words in the Bible that tell me that it's not about me. I need to get myself out of the way that I just need to cling to you and look to you and, and pursue a relationship with you and that if I do that, Lord, all things will come together. That through the storms, that through the pain, that through the struggles that I will have, I can be rooted in you and found in you and stuck together in you and that uh, all things will come together because of so, Lord, we pray that your spirit will dwell richly within our hearts. We pray that he will drive us towards you. We pray that we will be found in a relationship with you when it is required. And so, Lord, we pray that this place will be known as a people who love each other, a people who care for each other, and a people that follow you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.